I hate to break it to you, but you're in for a big surprise. Five years from now, Jane, who's resigning today, will ring the NASDAQ bell, officially launching her company on the public market. And what you'll soon realize is that Jane stole your most valuable data to start her new company on her way out the door. Learn how Code42 Insider can stop data theft and protect your organization's most valuable assets. Visit Code42.com to learn more. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the WIM Podcast. Women in Influencer Marketing, or WIM for short, is a first-of-its-kind exclusive networking group made up of inspirational women. This podcast is where we explore influencer marketing, advertising trends, and get real about women in business. Our mission is to network, to foster leaders within this exciting industry, and to share information to make our work stronger. That's where this podcast comes in. We'll bring you fresh perspectives on timely topics facing the industry from expert voices in the space. Find us wherever you download podcasts. And of course, you can always find us at IamWim.com. That's IamWim.com. It can be dangerously easy to steal your identity during tax season because so much sensitive info is all together. Before we start the annual meeting of Sean's personal info, uh, has anyone seen Social Security number? Not me. Nope. Nuh-uh. Oh, no. He's been stolen. LifeLock by Norton makes it easy to help protect yourself. If you become a victim, we'll work to fix it. No one can monitor all transactions, but you can save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Identity theft protection starts here. Megan Savitt has been a leading representative and visionary in the digital talent industry for almost a decade. In 2012, she created and soon after sold her first startup, Melrose and Park, which was a first of its kind digital talent agency for YouTube, Instagram, and Vine fashion and beauty personalities. She sold it to a leading women's content MCN style hall. She later headed up and led the division at Style Hall through its merger and acquisition with RTL in 2015. In 2016, she went solo again, starting her second firm, Savvy Communications, which was a digital-first marketing firm dedicated to representing talent and consulting brands. She also tenured at Two Pillar Management as a partner, continuing many of these efforts. However, in early 2020, she made the full-time pivot to brand marketing and storytelling on the agency side. While maintaining her talent relationships, Megan is now the VP of Strategy at Ben, which is Branded Entertainment Network, assisting to build their lifestyle initiatives. She's originally from Seattle, Washington. She graduated from the University of Michigan in 2011 with a BA in Film Studies, and she now lives in Los Angeles with her dog child, Luna, who makes an appearance on this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. You're someone in particular that has such a cool background. You've had different capacities within the industry as well, which I think is really interesting. So in the intro to the podcast, at least, we I said a lot about you and everything about you on paper, but I think it's always really beneficial to hear from your own words. Talk to us a little bit about your professional journey and how you made it to where you are today. Yeah. Well, I don't want to start too, too far back, but um, I actually got my start. I started interning at United Talent Agency when I was 16 with braces. So I, I did that actually most summers until I was 22 and was very much planning on going the agent route. But um, I went to University of Michigan and as a young sort of adventure driven 22 year old, I actually followed a boy to Boston instead. <laughs> And once I was there, um, I started working at a e-com company called Karma Loop. And they were uh, sort of a first of its kind streetwear e-com, um, think like Nasty Gal before Nasty Gal, like Supreme, I think was first sold on, on there outside of it being direct to consumer. Um, so, you know, very big in the 2011 timeframe. And they said, you're 22, you must know something about social media start taking over social media initiatives. And so I started linking basically with, with young women on YouTube and putting our products in their hands and doing so, you know, with the guidance of the team, but really making just genuine friendships with these young women. And I found it fascinating. And I also found it fascinating that they were starting to monetize on this. Long story short, did not work out with the boy, moved back to my hometown of Seattle. And uh, I built this program for another two companies in Seattle. 
after that, really started to see that there was a bit of a void in the representation space. And again, these young women who I just found fascinating and amazing, um, they started asking me for help just with certain deals, advice on things. Some of them were getting solicited for different licensing opportunities. And I started doing it on the side and it started to be um, a core passion and something that started actually taking my energy away from my day job. And against everyone's advice, I actually quit my job and started Melrose and Park out of my living room um, with my best friend, Ariel Isaacson. The two of us literally were just in our living room. We lived together, you know, emailing late into the night. And we, we ended up signing 50 young women actually within the first month of the company. Tell us like, what year is this? What year are we talking? We're talking uh, winter 2012 into early 2013. Okay. So this is, you know, this is a while back. Like this is at a very different point in influencer marketing. So very much so. So, you know, you, you started out working at one of the largest talent agencies in the world. Um, and it is a very different, very different culture. That's for sure. than possibly what would be, you know, in digital marketing. And then you end up wanting to start your own company um, Mm. with your roommate at the time. So talk to us about like, what are those conversations like you and your roommate, you're, you know, you feel like you're onto something, but I would assume it was a pretty big risk. I would assume that there was, you know, a lot of personal decisions that needed to be made. Um, But like, have us be a fly on the wall. Like what were those conversations like in the early days? Yeah, I'll be the first to say too. I mean, it was scrappy as, as hell. I mean, we were essentially, we were both at lockers and she was on the buying team and they decided that they were going to pivot from being, from selling product to being solely just content. So they were getting rid of that team. And she was saying, I'm going to have to move back to New York. And we had been sort of musing about this. You know, she she and I were both spending a ton of time on YouTube, on Facebook. Um, we had both become authentic fans of the space. And I said, let's just do it. Let's just start the company. We'll, we'll take a chance. And I mean, again, there were times where we were clipping coupons. And I mean, I think I was on food stamps for a hot second. Our parents were definitely very dubious of this whole thing. I think our landlord hated us. We definitely probably missed a month of rent, but we got it all together. And what I will say is that what it taught me is that we are capable of much more than we think we are. I was sort of very much in the mindset that I was going to be an assistant the rest of my life. And we started this company because there wasn't anyone else doing it. There was no other place to go. And I don't think we did it actually with an entrepreneurial mindset. We just did it with how do we continue to do a job that we're passionate about and not have to move home. So, you know, again, scrappy would be the word I'd keep hitting on the head. My boyfriend at the time, he also was a big part of the company and a huge support. And I need to call him out because he certainly helped. Uh, His name is Jeff Turnbull um, and his connections were huge. He actually originally represented Megan Parkin. He was like an OG in the space, but collaboratively, we just you know, we put our heads together, we made it work, and we ended up selling the company to Style Hall in August of that year down in Los Angeles. And that's actually what prompted my move down to California from Seattle. And so talk to us a little bit about that. There are more and more entrepreneurs that join WIM every day, which I think is super cool because it's sort of changed the landscape of our group. Um, The landscape of our group has significantly changed over time. And so for those entrepreneurs who are listening or watching on Facebook right now, talk to them a little bit about the, the sale process, because I'm sure that people start out and maybe similar to you, they're like, all right, like I have something here, or I just like love the crap out of what I'm doing. And I want to do it more. I want to do it my way. And so they embark on this journey. They start a company and then it perhaps, hopefully it continues to be more and more successful. And then they start to think like, all right, like what's the end game? Is it that I'm just going to like continue to have this sort of lifestyle business forever? And, you know, or am I going to sell it? Is it going to morph into something else? Everybody's acquisition or sale looks very different, but talk to us about what that was like for you. Should we assume that it was your first sale of a company? 
It okay. was 100% my first sale. Okay. <laughs> Just want to make sure you never know. <laughs> no, I, I, mean, I appreciate it. And I would say, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and being 23, there were a lot of things I, I would have done different even from the beginning of the company. But one thing I would first say is um, identifying our blind spots. Um, which I think are, I, I've always been very honest with myself about what I think I'm good at and what I think I'm not good at and surrounding myself with people that I believe are smarter than me, be it from a resource standpoint or even from a friend one, certainly if I could from like a formal staffing standpoint. Um, and I, I think that understanding, for example, I'm not an accountant and anything from a number standpoint really isn't my ballgame. So making sure that either I've got someone to help me with that or I'm outsourcing that to some sort of service that makes sense. In terms of sales, automating as much as possible is very important, especially when you're trying to scale. So templatizing things, ensuring that you're, you're throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what sticks, but then when you see what does stick, if you will, you're optimizing and shifting and leaning into that. Um, Can we talk about that for a second? Because yeah. anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I'm such a geek about automating things and like using tools and resources to just like better your business. So yeah. even back then, you knew you recognized the value of that. And I'm sure you've learned a lot since then. Like, can you get specific for people who are listening? Like yeah. what things were most beneficial to templatize and, and automate? And, you know, what have you learned along the way in that capacity? Yeah. So I am a huge Canva user, if you're familiar. <laughs> um, and I love the tool. And it's a neat one for those who aren't familiar because it's free. But there are certain, uh, if you do buy the, you know, more advanced package version, there's even more you can do with it, similar to like an Adobe. But it's one, very user-friendly, it's very intuitive, and it's really easy to share different templates and to do things in a way that isn't on the Google system and isn't via the Microsoft Office suite. Both of which are great, by the way, and I still use. But I was a huge Canva user. That's one, if we're getting granular. Pipe Drive is a huge one for me that kept me very, very organized, and I still use to this day. I use it personally, even though it's not a tool that I use at my company to give you a sense of how much I love it. Salesforce, you know, forever will be just a great tool. And then, I'm, I mean, I'm a QuickBooks user. Um, I think that that's really, really important. And the other thing I'll say is taxes, taxes, taxes. Make sure that you understand your taxes. I did not understand my taxes throughout this sale. It was a bit of an ugly process. Uh, we figured it out, of course. <laughs> but I would say that's another one um, to, to focus on and to highlight. But I mean, in, in terms of like, you know, granularly what the SaaS platforms were that we used, I, I mean, I think it's definitely Pipedrive, Canva, Salesforce, um, and of course, like our Microsoft suite were the ones that we use the most. That's awesome. And so, you know, then I guess I'd love to hear, you know, next about the process of selling to, you know, to a style hall, which, you know, was one of the biggest MCNs out there and like very specifically, like when I think of style hall, I think of like fashion and beauty. Like that's what I think of when I think of style hall. And then I remember meeting with their team years later and them say, you know, and uh, you know, a uh, beauty and, and fashion MCN. And then I remember meeting with them years later and them saying like, we're not an MCN. <laughs> so I don't know how they currently define themselves. Um, or I guess they're no, they're, they're no longer around, are they? Yeah, they've since consolidated with RTL. And I believe right. that the UK office is still got it. But yeah, I, I don't think that they have a formal presence in the US anymore. Got it. But when they were around and especially in their like heyday, they were huge, huge people in the space. Before they bought Melrose and Park, were they representing talent before then? Yes and no. Um, you know, it was such the Wild West, as they say, and still is in some ways, but it really was then in the sense that, you know, people didn't quite know how to define influencers as they were. I mean, some people were even calling them hall girls because it were girls that were hauling and they didn't know what else to call them. So they literally just called them hall girls. And so I, I think that when they started, when these women and, and men actually, when these people started monetizing who and how to help them became very gray. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that 
this is when people like myself started getting in there, but multi-channel networks were also not only selling to them, but also assisting them with their deals. And it's, I think that's why they had interest in obtaining Melrose and Park because they had an appetite to do more in the representation space in a more formal way. But I think you know, Stephanie Horbacheski, their CEO, who is a brilliant woman, by the way, I think that she also wanted to be sensitive of, you know, the interest of church and state and keeping some division between the MCN and the management firm. And that's why she acquired it as, in theory, sort of an independent subsidiary to, to sit beside it, similarly, actually, to, to what Awesomeness and, and BigFrame did, if you're familiar with, with that uh, acquisition and merger. Totally. And so looking back, because this was in, what did you say, like 2012, 2013, or this was a little later? So 2013 in August is when we were officially acquired. And so looking back to your 2013 self, um, you know, what, what, what have you, what have you learned that you'll take when you sell your next company in the future? That is a very good question. Um, I would say I'd want to really survey all options. Um, I mean, I, I will say I wouldn't have done anything differently in terms of who I sold to. So the reason I sold to Style Hall was I, I was really impressed with, with Stephanie and her leadership and the fact that she attempted to run her company as horizontally as she could. And she really enabled me to have a seat at the table in a way I'm not sure anyone else would have. But that being said, you know, in general, if I was to sell a company again, I would say certainly surveying all options, understanding the landscape in a meaningful way and making sure that you do I think this goes without saying, but legal counsel um, and ensuring that that's a very big part of the equation. And then finally, I think moral fiber of, of who you're selling to, um, at least for me, that's very important. Um, I wanted I wanted what I represented and stood for to align with who I was positioning myself with, because otherwise that didn't feel authentic to me. Totally. And it's your baby that you've cultivated over so long. You had a company with other people, of course, but like, this is your company and, you know, all the hard work and blood and sweat and tears of having your own company. It's such a huge, huge decision. So I could only assume that like selling it to somebody, like you have vetted that person and you believe where they can take it to the next level. Um, And so your, so then that phase of your life, Um, is behind you. And then you end up at a few more places after. Um, So talk to us a little bit about, you know, the journey after and even sort of deciding after you sold, you know, where you would go next on your professional career path. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, it was my baby. And um, one of the reasons, again, why I chose to uh, sell the style hall was they enabled me to actually continue running the company. So Once I sold, I actually ran the company for another almost three years through their acquisition from RTL and learned a lot and met a lot of incredible people, a lot of incredible women. I brought on a woman named Abigail uh, and Andal, who I think um, was on the podcast recently. And she and I were friends throughout the, the past couple of years. And she came on and was sort of my partner in crime. And I mean, those were some of the best years of my life collaborating with her. She and I have then moved actually over to STX together and and we worked there and great company, amazing people, wasn't the right fit for for either one of us. I had a little bit of a quarter life crisis, if you will, and actually thought, oh no, do I want to be a manager anymore? And I actually took a month off and, and left all of my clients with her and literally had a little bit of a quarter life crisis and decided I still wanted to be a manager and started another company it was actually sort of more of a moniker, but went into business again on my own um, under Savvy Communications. Uh, Savvy was my nickname in high school. <laughs> and uh, I signed a whole new roster of clients, actually. So um, I signed another 20 women and, and continued to manage them at Savvy. And I also started consulting for brands and really found that I enjoyed doing that. So consulting them on how to work with talent, how to identify the right talent to work with, how to price that, what that content looks like, where to put that content. By now, we had a lot more platforms to play with. When I first started, it was just YouTube and Facebook, um, obviously Instagram. uh, And at that point, Vine and Snapchat were all very much uh, blaring and and their 
So that was <laughs> interesting and fun times. And uh, again, just continued to do that and had an appetite to work with people more closely. So I started working more closely with a woman named Naomi Lennon. And together we went over to pillar management. And I went into that thinking, I've done this for almost 10 years and I love it. And I love my talent and they're like my children, but I'm 30 at this point or just turning 30 and don't have any children of my own. And at some point would like for my children to be biological and not necessarily represent clients. So I went into it thinking, you know what, if this isn't for me, my next move is going to be a little different just because I, I'm going to need that for myself. And so I was at T-Pillar for about a year. I learned a lot. I worked with some amazing people, but I made the really actually tough decision to, to make a complete pivot. And uh, I went over to the brand agency side and I'd worked with a, a ton of brand agencies, by the way, completely run the gambit. And I truly believe this one to be the best one. That being said, I know I am now biased and have consumed the company Kool-Aid, um, but I went over to, to Ben and I, I now oversee strategy there. So cool. You know, different life stages, of course, indicated your, you know, or how to say in your professional journey. I don't know how it couldn't, you know? Um, and so, you know, where you are today you know, you're overseeing strategy and arguably I would assume that you're using all of the different skills that you've acquired over so many years. Um, so talk to us a little bit about, you know, where you are presently and, you know, the role that you've got, but more importantly, like how and what you're able to pull from all of your past experiences. Yeah, no, it's, it's, really neat to be able to do that. Um, well, a little bit about Ben is um, it's a content marketing firm. Um, first and foremost, it's all about uh, integrating a content without disrupting it. So we really run the gambit from anything from celebrity, day part, late night, linear music video and influencer, one-stop shop, we can do it all. So what I love about that is that um, I'm not pigeonholed to working with anyone in particular and I'm not pigeonholed to any specific platform. But to your point, I'm able to draw upon a lot of the relationships that I've aggregated over the years, both with brands who I've tried to you know, bring under our umbrella from a partnership standpoint, but also with talent who I want to continue to help and mentor. And also I want to keep you know, an ear to the ground with because they are I mean, they are the pioneers of this space. They are the innovators and the thought leaders to be honest. And, uh, you know, they're the ones that are coming to us with the great ideas. And so by having those relationships, I think it enables us to be on the front line, if you will, in terms of obtaining new trends and, and seeing things as they are conceptualized in real time. And so that's been really special. I would also say, yeah, I've, I've sort of in my time done everything from execution, sales, account management, and strategy. So to be able to sort of hone in and, and sort of uh, be a little bit more specific. It's also been really fun uh, to be able to do a little bit more brand storytelling um, and to sort of take it to the next level. It's like injecting prior efforts with steroids and really having the time to, to make them a bit more meaningful. We've been in a crazy time this past year. Like it's been a while since you and I connected and like what a time in the world to reconnect. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a really refreshing thing to fully believe that our industry is absolutely going to withstand this pandemic and this like economic craziness and like just the crazy world that we're currently in. So how fortunate we are to be a part of that, like does not escape me. It's as it looks like the look on your face, it doesn't escape you either. Um, yeah. And so, you know, my hope is that since we're going to withstand this, that influencer marketing could also change in a positive way in reaction to all of this. And just because the improvement is just a, a byproduct of, of like wonderful change. Talk to me about just personally, what would you like to see in the influencer marketing space change at all? We could talk about you know, influencer trends or the way influencers are hired or their content or brand partnerships in particular and how they are like, 
It's a broad question, very intentionally so, but I would just love to hear your thoughts because you have so much experience in so many different capacities. So what would you like to see change in 2021 in the influencer marketing space? I mean, that's an amazing question. And what I'll say is, I mean, there are a lot of things I'd love to see change. I'd also, I think there's been a lot of really positive change already. But one, I think it's identifying the right voices. I mean, it's such a saturated space. And by the way, that's that's great because it means that the business is only growing. Um, but I think, you know, people who are breeding positivity, people who are sharing knowledge, people who, um, you know, are, are creating art and entertainment. Um, I think that in, in past, there's been a lot of drama-filled content, a lot of conflict breeding content, if you will. I think that, you know, I, I want to maintain some semblance of being PC, but I would say I'd love for us to highlight more of the creative efforts that are there. I think that we're doing that though. So I, I think that we're already starting to, to share a lot of uh, more genuine voices, more meaningful stories, things that are a little bit more narrative driven. I think it's a little bit less about cam girls and, um, you know, as they say, the, the Insta pose. In terms of, I'm trying to think in terms of other bits of change. I feel that, I think from a marketing standpoint, we need to get smarter. I think that Gen Zs are very, very savvy to, to this space and understand when they're being presented an ad. And so I would say understanding the audience and the demographic and going into it from a bit more of a strategic standpoint is going to be important when marketing to these people. And I think that we're seeing that more than ever right now. In terms of other change, I think that talent, you know, it is truly talent. So, you know, not viewing these people necessarily as just a page that you can throw an ad, but it's somebody that's actually, again, sharing their art or sharing their professional prowess. And how do you organically integrate in that so that it makes sense and tells the story? I think that's awesome. And like what I'm hearing is that, you know, there's a lot more artistry that needs to happen and a lot more thought needs to be put into who's creating that art for a brand or creating that online, um, just being more intentional about it. What do you say about the analytic side of things, right? Like the numbers side of things. I feel like it's always such a balance between the two, art and science. With influencer marketing, it's no different. And I'm sure you're privy to lots of conversations internally at your company, any company you've ever been in, about things like ROI, things like measurement in general. Um, there's a lot of money being thrown at influencers and um, and a lot of money being thrown around the industry in general. Um, I happen to think, knock on wood, that you know once COVID is no more, that influencer marketing is actually going to take off even more than it was projected to prior to COVID. That's just my personal opinion. It sounds like you may agree. Let's talk a little bit about that though, because no conversation about influencer marketing is complete if you're only talking about the artistry of it. And so what, you know, as a, a strategist now and as someone who has, are, I'm sure you've seen so many different campaigns <laughs> and how they've performed and, you know, you can definitely identify trends and, and certain like best practices. What do you say for, what would you say to, let's say a new brand, you know, exploring influencer marketing for the first time? Um, let's say they're established, they're not a small company, but they've never explored it before because they've been skeptical. What would you say to that person as to, you know, what's reasonable to expect and sort of like best practices to get the most ROI for their bang for their buck? Oh, it's a great question. I think that the most important thing for a company is the full funnel marketing. So at the top, really focusing on awareness, those big, flashy pulse points that sort of evangelize the brand, get it into household conversation. Those usually are, are a little bit more creative or artistry driven, if you will. But then also going down to the lower end of the funnel, where we get a little bit more performance conversion marketing centric. And it's all about, you said, you know, how do we get that ROI and really tracking it? Um, and so something actually that we really do here, uh, that we're really known for here at Ben is we do a hybrid model actually, where we're able to utilize our AI to come up with an aggressive CPV and we work on a CAC on the back end so that we're taking on the risk with 
the partner. And so it's a way that we're actually able to predict how many conversions a brand's going to get before even, you know, signing a contract. And so that's been really, really awesome. I think also being able to identify, again, from a data-driven standpoint, who's going to convert and what's going to be a win or a miss. And so, you know, for example, I didn't know anything about bots. That was something that as the manager, I knew about fake followers. I knew that my clients were not purchasing fake followers. And so I thought in my head that meant that they had a healthy channel. Upon actually putting a few of them in the system, I, I learned actually that they've got 30 to 35% bots and they didn't even know that they had them. And the funny thing is, is that these bots are getting smarter and they're actually able to emulate human behavior and they can like and comment and actually watch live threads like this one. Oh my God, do we have bots watching right now? <laughs> With this proprietary, sophisticated AI that they have at Ben, and this is so neat and I geek out over it, we're able to actually go in and, and see that score. And so we're, we're going in and again, we're identifying voices that make sense, that we know are gonna convert and it's all being done as we sort of define it from a cyborg method. So utilizing experts in house who, in theory like me, have relationships and have done this for a really long time, but doing so uh, in, in marriage with just really, really uh, sophisticated machine learning that is far smarter than I could ever be and is sort of guiding me and dictating where I should go so that I can better hit the mark. And so since you have access to this like incredible information, I'm not going to ask you to share your secrets, but what I will ask you to share is like, so what sort of trends have you seen? Like based on what you've learned from these tools, have you been able to sort of paint a picture of what a great influencer looks like? And a great influencer, of course, is somebody that could really produce for a brand. Um, like what does that person look like? What's the ideal? I think it really depends on the KPI of the brand. I don't think it's one size fits all. I mean, that's a great question, but I think, you know, what might work for one brand wouldn't work for another. Um, and I also think we, we can't be married to one vertical. One thing that I have learned actually via this AI is that sometimes we're wrong. So we might think, for example, that we want to hit moms who are in their early thirties but we actually can identify that there's an audience of men in their late forties that would perform better. And so to my point far earlier about throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks, it's a little bit of that married with prior experience and, and proven converted data. And so let's pivot a bit and just speak a little bit more personally. Like who do you, who do you like to follow? I mean, I, you represented so many different types of influencers too. And so I'm sure like that sort of those trends of like who you represent, I would assume maybe are part of the people that you follow. Yes. Um, maybe not, perhaps not. And I'm sure, you know, as you've gone into different life stages, um, you follow different influencers. I guess my first question is what's your favorite platform? Oh, that's a tough one, but I'd say probably Instagram um, in terms of what I use on the most often. And it's probably how I keep my friends and family the most updated. So. so do you think that if you worked in a different space, like if you were a beekeeper, <laughs> that you would be on Instagram? Or do you think that that's largely dictated because of what you do for a living? No, I, I think Instagram is definitely, I mean, for a brand right now, if you're looking to just at all dabble in social media marketing, I mean, Instagram is definitely the lowest point of entry or, or the easiest point of entry in terms of what you can test, the type of content that you can test um, and how you can test it, just because they've got so many different format offerings. But for me, I'm a big fan of the stories. It's easy to do in the day. It's a great way to keep your friends and family updated. Um, and for brands, I think it's, it's really organic and authentic because it's just, you know, Hey, like, for example, I actually love Suja juice and I'm drinking it right now. That could be a story. That was a story. And that was not like sponsored by any means. It wasn't. I actually, <laughs> if they could sponsor me, I'd appreciate it. Cause I spent a great deal on this brand every month. <laughs> Where do you get it? Where do you buy that from? Sprouts. From Sprouts? What's Sprouts? I don't know Sprouts. 
it's like an iterative of a Trader Joe's slash Whole Foods if they had a baby type thing, I'd say. <laughs> totally. Uh, you tell them a New Yorker then? <laughs> so is this just a California brand? Is that why, I don't know, Sprouts perhaps? I, I, would, I would imagine that it would be because I, I actually just heard about it when I moved to California. So yeah. So Sprouts. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep an eye out for any New York uh, stores that sell it and I'll keep you Yeah. But wait, so who I follow though? Because I yeah, tell me. Yeah, I would say so. I do keep an eye on all of my all of my babies, as they call them. So I do follow all of them, um, and um, to call it a few. Uh, Cassie Diamond is an incredible one. Alicia Marie, who I used to represent, is incredible. Um, Claudia Saluski, Alexa May, Griffin Armland, Carrington Durham. Jonas Bridges. There's so many amazing people. I'm going to call out my mother here. I'm really, really big fan of my mother and my mother's network. She is also a very badass executive woman. And so using Instagram to follow her and her network has been very, very neat. Um, Violet Benson, daddy issues. I find to be hilarious. Whenever I need a good laugh, I go and look at her page. Um, but also to be honest, I use it very much to follow things like Wynn and to follow people like you and Abigail and Claire and, you know, Stephanie, as I mentioned. And it's, it's just for me, actually, between that and LinkedIn, it's my most utilized networking tool. Yeah, no, I love it. It's, it's interesting how when you work in social media, it sort of, it does blend um, certainly between personal and professional. Do you find that, have you always been okay with that? Um, or do you embrace that currently? How do, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I think that you need to decide actually, you know, and I'm, I'm usually a proponent of more being on the scale of gray, but I think that you need to decide, um, one way or another, if you want to be forward facing or not on camera or not, when you kind of get into that industry, I made the decision I didn't want to be. And while there are some aspects of my life that are shared, it's very much what I want to be shared. I'm not an influencer, nor would I like to be. That being said, I respect, of course, everyone that does it. Um, it's just not for me. It's interesting because we have had a couple conversations on this podcast even about that topic where, I, you know, and I'd love to, you, you just touched a little bit on your mom, who I do want to hear a little bit more about because she sounds like she's a huge inspiration to you, but to use her possibly as an example and other women in, you know, really exciting positions and, and roles in life. When you're in that sort of a position, um, I've had people on this podcast who they're certainly not influencers, but they're influential and you know, they have their own PR people, you know, to manage their own personal PR. Um, and, you know, it's definitely a strategy. It's not a strategy I've ever implemented myself personally. It's definitely an interesting conversation because, you know, you're in the world of social media and, you know, arguably, like, let's say you're an influencer and you're looking for management. Like, I wonder if they want their managers to be on social and so that they understand the nuances and intricacies, or if they explicitly do not want their manager on social because they don't want to feel like they're competing with their own manager for work. Um, I feel like people have a lot of different viewpoints on that, but can we dig into a little bit of yours? Yeah. Um, well, to your point, I mean, I think there's a difference between being influential and being an influencer. And for me, an influencer, I mean, the word itself is, again, it's vague, but it's, it's talent. So that's, I think, you know, for me, it's not that I don't want to have, um, I don't not want to have influence, but I don't necessarily want to be talent. And I think that from what I've seen, but this is just my opinion, most talent don't want their managers to be seen as talent because to your point, it's sort of like robbing Peter to pay Paul a little bit. Worried that it's a conflict of interest, worried that they're utilizing their talent to get you know, a boost in their own clout. Um, not to say that that's always the case. I've, I've certainly seen it work. But most of the time, that's been my experience. And I also think, you know, it's just never, I mean, as a child, I did want to be a professional singer. That's, that's actually true. But outside of that, I just never had the appetite to share my entire life. However, to your point, you know, and, and being on today's podcast, exemplifying that, you know, certainly like to have a voice that's heard. So I think that there is a little bit of distinction there. 
Absolutely. So can we talk a little bit about, learn a little bit about your mom? It sounds like she's had a really exciting professional journey of her own, perhaps, and I would assume has been pretty influential to, to your journey. So tell us a little bit about your mama. <laughs> yeah, she's great. I'm, well, I'm definitely a mama's girl, but yeah, so she's an executive. Um, she was the chief marketing officer at American Eagle Outfitters. Um, she was also not the chief marketing officer, but uh, I believe senior vice president of marketing at Amazon, started and ran lockers, and was also the chief marketing officer of Yahoo with Marissa Mayer for three and a half years um, prior to uh, starting another company called Perch Partners, which was actually in uh, the most recent 5,000 uh, America's, America's fastest growing 5,000 companies. So it's really great for her to, to be in that. Um, but she's just really run the gambit. And I think the thing that um, I find so impressive about her is that she's done everything from entertainment marketing to, you know, being thigh deep in Silicon Valley, raising money um, for different companies to being on boards for global, you know, airlines. Um, and she really taught me that, you know, even in the 90s, when it was a lot more of a boys club, don't be afraid to get in there and, and you know, and be the woman that you are, because you can compete and you can get in and do just as good of a job. Um, and, and I think that, you know, for me, working was always part of the equation. Trying to be an executive was always a part of the equation. It was just sort of bred into me at a very young age. And I have four sisters, actually. So she's an incredible role model to them as well. And, you know, we're a very female driven household on that side. I've actually got two brothers as well. On the other side, I've got sort of a 2.0 nuclear family, as you say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so she's, and she's an amazing role model and has certainly accomplished a lot and seen a lot. What an incredible woman to have be your, your role model growing up. And it sounds like even to this day, um, are your siblings like following in those footsteps? What, like <laughs> you have a lot of siblings too, which I think is so cool. How did she influence the households? Well, so I'm the oldest and the only product of my mother and father. So she's been married three times and with that have come like iterations and, and that. My, my oldest youngest sister is 22 mm -hmm. and she's actually working in social media at the uh, new NHL team in Seattle. So cool. Yeah. So that's really neat. And she just graduated from university of Michigan, go blue. And then my other sisters are still in school. So they're still quite young, but just so bright. And certainly they've taught me, by the way, they keep me young. They teach me all of the new trends as well as the TikTok dances, thankfully. And my little brothers are also in school. And uh, my oldest of the youngest brothers is actually on the baseball team at Union College. And um, yeah, I'd say I've always had sort of a bit more of like a parental relationship with my siblings outside of the oldest of the youngest, Isabel, who is, um, I mean, she and I are pretty much the same person, except she's 10 years younger than me. And I'm not sure what that says about, says about my maturity, but you know, <laughs> no, that's awesome. Um, I'm also the product of uh, an extended family and I'm also a bonus mom myself. So definitely not to underestimate the value that, you know, and the influence that your mom had on like each and every one of your siblings. Um, I think that's so cool to have to grow up with a mom like that, I'm sure you think it's just as amazing. It sounds like um, I'm sure that, um, and it's it's also very cool to hear that, you know, I heard you say earlier that you know, in your throughout your professional journey, you sort of came to the point where you're like, you know, I might want to have a family of my own someday. Mm -hmm. um, we recently had someone on the podcast who. Um, while she was recording, she's pregnant. We've had women on the podcast with kids, without kids. I've said personally before, I'm like, when I was, let's say 25, I like made a proclamation. I was like, nah, I don't think kids are in my future. It's just not what I, what I wanted. I really wanted to focus on, um, on my career. Um, and then for me personally, something just sort of switched. Um, and I really had a desire to have kids. So 
Um, I haven't had any biological ones yet, but I do have a beautiful stepdaughter. It's a very important conversation um, and a frequent conversation that women have in this industry, because as I'm sure you know, specifically in social media, it's like the day never ends sometimes. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's like working 24 seven, it feels like. And for sure, for, you know, like women either starting out or, you know, who are just having uh, who are in a role that, you know, is really demanding, um, having other things that are important to you in your life can seem challenging, um, how to balance it all. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about your life and how, just how you've balanced things from personal and professional uh, throughout your journey. Yeah. Well, I'll preface that with, it's a little bit of the blind leading the blind. Um, I'm, I'm not necessarily the most sterling role model of, of work-life balance. However, I am really a proponent of it. And it's something that I really strive to implement for those around me. And to the best of my ability, I'm actually working on it a lot right now. So new year resolutions. But most importantly, I think it's what I tell myself and actually I tell everyone around me is, one, we're not hearing cancer. I mean, we are in an incredible industry where you know, we're, we're working with brands and, and talented people. We're creating stuff. Um, we need to remember that. And I think also, you know, at the end of the day, we're human. We can only do what we do. And so what I tell everybody is you can go to bed saying you tried your hardest. That's all we can do and, and go to bed happy and put it, put everything else to bed because again, it's just not worth it. And I think that we do need to, I think COVID actually has shown us that actually so many events of this year have shown us that it's just too damn short and we should be with our loved ones. We should be outside. We should be enjoying the little things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do my best to, to breed that around me. And so what if you find like, look, I'll, we talk a lot about balance on this podcast, which is kind of, I don't know if it's ironic or not, but like, I'm right there with you. And you're like, I'm not the pillar of perfection here. <laughs> like I maybe understand that there is a value to work-life balance for sure. But like, I'm just trying to figure it out like the best of us and like not necessarily, you know, uh, winning that battle. Like last night I was working till 1130 and I was just so exhausted. I just went right to sleep. Um, so, you know, let's just be real about that as well. And I appreciate you when you're, you know, saying that because I feel like a lot of people could definitely relate to it. So, and I also think it's a personal thing, right? Like certain things relax other people and would, you know, some people are really into meditation. Other people would be like, I don't get meditation. (laughs) I don't know how people tune out. It's like, what works for you? Like, what do you really enjoy? Like what really, really gets you to, you know, take a breath and, and relax? Yeah. It, so to your point, it's so different for everybody. Um, for me, every night or whenever I decide to end my work day, I actually take a hot shower and sing in the shower. And every day it's a different playlist. And um, so fun fact, I was in a acapella group in college and I do like to sing. Um, and so for me, that's my release in the day to just, you know, be a goofball in the bathroom, sing as loud as I can, uh, get everything out. But that's for me what distresses me. And I think it's having something that signifies the end of the day, something that helps you put that part of the day to bed is, I think if, if you find whatever works for you in that realm, then then you're, then it's doing its job. Totally, totally. So I'm excited to ask you this question. We ask everybody on the podcast, um, what do you wish somebody had told your younger self that would have given you a professional or a personal advantage today? I would say uh, the thing that I wish I could tell myself, I think it's honestly, ask for help is one, don't be afraid to. And I'd say also, I would say I wish I stopped and smelled roses a little bit more. So I think, again, the little things, whatever they are, be it a show that you love to watch or a person that you like to get coffee with or just stopping and, and looking at what you built and admiring it for a second, taking a personal day, like things like that, I will say um, I am very proud of what I've achieved. 
but I think that I worked so hard during my 20s that I don't know how much of my 20s I really got to experience. And so I'm so happy actually that you brought up work-life balance because while I believe that we need to challenge ourselves and be as scrappy as we can to, to reach our dreams and our goals, I think we need to remember to be kind to ourselves, to do right by ourselves and to also um, take care of ourselves. So, you know, for me, I would, if I, if there was a way I could say that to myself without me essentially being like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and I would, I would love to have ingrained that a little bit more in my younger self. Yeah. We don't want to dismiss our former selves, but we want to empower our, our, you know, our, our, yeah. our younger selves. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a really empowering thing to be able to say, but real and relatable for sure. For whoever wants to reach out and get in touch with you, what's the best way that they can reach out? Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, anyway, via Instagram, via email, via LinkedIn. So we will drop all of those links in the show notes. Um, and for all of you listening on both Facebook, uh, we saw some of your comments, which are awesome. Um, thank you so, so much. And for those listening to the podcast, we always appreciate you tuning in. And to Megan, the guest of the hour, you're wonderful. And thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much again for having me. It was honestly such a pleasure. Thank you everyone so much for listening. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. We love comments, so comment on this podcast and we may shout you out on our next episode. Join us next time and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. Tune in next week. It can be dangerously easy to steal your identity during tax season because so much sensitive info was all together. Before we start the annual meeting of Sean's personal info, uh, has anyone seen Social Security number? Not me. Nope. Nuh-uh. Oh, no. He's been stolen. LifeLock by Norton makes it easy to help protect yourself. If you become a victim, we'll work to fix it. No one can monitor all transactions, but you can save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Identity theft protection starts here.